Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Michael Gross, your podcast host for today. Welcome. Our podcast guests are Mina Andipan from the University of Toronto, Estelle Archibald from Case Western Reserve University, Deborah Kidder from the University of Hartford, Tyler Okimoto from the University of Queensland, Gregory Paul from Kansas State University. Today's guest and podcast is from a panel symposium sponsored by the Conflict Management Division and the Gender and Diversity and Organization Division of the Academy of Management. The symposium took place at the 81st annual meeting. Today's episode is one of a five-part series on restorative justice in the workplace. We thank our guests for participating in the panel symposium and joining us. Let's listen in on the symposium as it was recorded live at the conference. How might we contextualize or problematize restorative justice research to better serve practicing managers and forecast their needs one, five, and 10 years in the future? So I, thanks, Michael. I, I like the idea of, of kind of thinking about what they're, what we're going to need in the future. And so, so in a way, we can kind of imagine that everybody already uses restorative practice. And so what, what are they going to need next? Um, you know, here in Australia, um, uh, you know, I th- thought it might be useful to, to share a, a you know, personal experience and anecdote. Uh, I think we're actually quite progressive in, our, in our, uh, the way that we manage conflict here in Australia. Um, our Australian labor laws um, are very empowering to staff. Um, uh, and, and so in, in that sense, I'd hesitate to say that we're you know, probably five years ahead of, of uh, a number of other countries uh, in that regard. But let me, let me tell you how this usually works out. Um, and this is from my own experience as deputy dean in the business school where I'm responsible for, uh, for managing conflicts. Yay. Um, when there's agreements, people, you know, the, the, there's, there's an exchange with each of those individuals, usually by HR and the manager. The individuals are encouraged to come together. Um, both parties are encouraged to willing, willingly and openly discuss their perspective and understand the other perspective. Uh, there's sharing, there's you know, recognition of the importance of the other person. Um, there's usually a support person on hand uh, for the offender. It's usually their union rep. Um, and uh, the discussion is, is encouraged in a direction that's about agreement and next steps. And you know, so, so on the surface, it you know, sounds like a really nice kind of basic structured uh, restorative discussion. What actually happens is that both parties come to the table, they know what they're getting into, um, they say all the right things, but they don't actually mean it. They go through the process. Um, they, you know, they, they know that it'll escalate uh, to adjudication if they don't come to some sort of agreement and that neither party actually wants that. And so they say, okay, well, this is what you want me to do. This is the game that you want me to play. I'll go ahead and play it. 
And I've seen this happen time after time. And so, you know, there's, there's a really big risk. And, and I think, uh, I forget whether Greg or, or Deb talked about this earlier. There's a bit of a risk in having it proceduralized and embedded in what it is that we do, uh, because that, um, uh, that managerial discretion or, or uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, doesn't have the opportunity to affect that process. Now, then in thinking you know, back to this question about what we need to do as researchers to help these sorts of problems, um, I think we talk a lot about the process itself, uh, what's important in the process. Um, we talk a lot about the context, how the context can support that. We probably don't talk enough about the individuals that are involved and uh, signals of their readiness for uh, for engaging in these uh, these sorts of conversations. You know, it's it's quite implicit in that people need to be willing to engage, um, but in the context of a uh, a grievance process, we also need to know when uh, when managers should have the discretion to turn that off and take a different direction. Um, we don't really know about readiness, and readiness is so important. Uh, because the kind of constructive, restorative, authentic conversation doesn't actually happen unless people are actually open and being proactive about um, trying to uh, uh, trying to engage with the other party and really help the other party uh, in resolving their concerns. Um, you know, the in absence of that, it's just a an inauthentic dance that people go through to get through the yucky conflict process. And so, you know, I think, I think where we can focus and do better as researchers is to really um, recognize that, you know, codifying this as a practice for dealing with grievances could potentially lead down this, um, uh, this mechanized avenue. And, and what is it that we need to put in place to really um, encourage managers to use discretion to understand, you know, uh, you know, maybe what what a framework for readiness should be um, prior to uh, triggering this uh, this process. You know, no, don't get me wrong. I think generally restorative processes uh, as a as a broad um, approach uh, is a great thing. You know, understanding, you know, coming to agreement. Yes, absolutely. But we don't. We perhaps don't want to necessarily get into a formal restorative conferencing process uh, unless we have the discretion to uh, to really read the situation accurately. All right, thank you, Greg. What would you like to add? My head goes so many places. Um, I, you know, I, I and I'm so I'm going to put on my quantitative uh, researcher hat, and then I'm going to shift and turn on my qualitative researcher hat, and then I'm just going to blow it all up and talk about it. Uh, talk about this from a critical perspective. Uh, so uh, from a quantitative researcher perspective, I think we've got to get way better at operationalizing uh, restorative justice in terms of its practices, its processes, and outcomes. I've seen a number of measures out there uh, that um, talk about restorative justice, uh, but there's also, and you can uh, peruse the pages of Contemporary Justice uh, Review, I believe it is, CJR. They're filled with all of these different definitions of restorative justice. Well, when we're dealing with all these concept, different conceptual definitions, 
we're going to get all these different measures, right? So how can we develop uh, a, a usable measure that will have appropriate validity and reliability? That, that's one. Another uh, interest of mine uh, that I think would do well is looking at those factors that predict people's ripeness or openness or to, to use uh, Tyler's uh, words, readiness uh, to uh, dialogue with someone else. Looking at those factors uh, that uh, are associated uh, with perspective taking, you know, uh, and some of the other practices that are associated with restorative justice. If I put on my qualitative researcher uh, hat, uh, I'm interested in how people make meaning. Uh, so I'm interested in the different uh, language uh, structures uh, that people use uh, and the different ways that they communicate um, or make sense out of what they're experiencing individually, relationally, and, you know, as a, and as a, as a workplace. I'm interested in the ways that people construct or make justice uh, by, you know, through the water cooler talk, uh, by talking with their manager in those, um, in those dialogic encounters uh, with the other person. Uh, and then if I put on my critical um, researcher hat, I'm interested in the ways that restorative justice can be uh, unintentionally hurtful, right? So Deb uh, interested the, uh, or, or not interested, Deb referred to the MCQ piece uh, from a few years ago that talked about these unintentional uh, situations where uh, something that uh, really uh, promises community can actually be really exclusionary, right? And so restorative justice can and does have these paradoxes. Well, if we look at a site that's so imbued with power, like workplaces, can restorative justice actually be used to scapegoat people, to concentrate power in the hands of the righteous, right? Or the people who believe that they're being righteous, uh, and to say, all right, well, you're just not being restorative. You're not being restorative enough. So you don't belong here. I want people who look at the way that I do. So can restorative justice, oddly enough, be used to like drive people away and to create this like cult-like mentality in a workplace that has these spiritual overtones, but it really just feeds the man, and it's usually the man, at the top of the system, right? Uh, and so if, if I'm looking one, five, 10 years down the road, I want to know how can we actually develop systems that promote human growth and learning and not be used uh, perversely to keep power in the hands of the already powerful. All right. Thank you. Mina, what would you like to jo uh, join us with? Um, so I'll take a slightly different angle here um, in terms of contextualizing restorative justice, uh, most likely because I've been in the uh, artificial intelligence space uh, recently. Um, and so I will say that to me, a lot of the things we're, we're talking, like what I'm thinking about a lot of the sort of future of management research, I think there's a huge piece that comes from sort of the introduction of AI and new technologies. Um, and so I think we need to focus, at there, there's already so much presence actually of AI, which I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, it's not fully recognized when we look into our research. Um, and so I think we need to start, you know, considering about some, thinking about how some of these psychological constructs are 
um, recognized or realized or used in sort of AI and human interactions. Um, and so you might say, oh, you know, it's just, it's not like piece of like, oh, are they taking over our jobs and this and that, but there is a lot, like there are already a lot of companies who are using AI to make decisions related to firings and promotions and hiring, things like that, right? Um, and these are a lot of the important decisions that we then people are upset about. People feel like, oh, this wasn't really fair how this decision was made. Um, you know, this, you know, it hurts my relationship with my manager, et cetera. Um, whereas a lot of companies are saying, let's use technology in this way because, you know, it, it creates a sort of objective as, a, you know, a more objective way of evaluating our employees. Um, but at the same time, I'm, it's more objective, but people have a lot of different feelings about AI and the way they interact with it and the way they receive news from AI is very different from the way that they are receptive to news from a, given to them by a human. Um, and so I think that this really needs a lot more, you know, that's a really big area of research. I think a really important area of research in the next one and five and 10 years that needs to be done. Um, because even if uh, you're working, you're not directly working with AI. If it is AI who is, you know, creating some evaluations, who is a presence in your work life, or you have some sort of interaction with AI, you might not, you know, recognize that those relationships that you have with AI, you know, you're saying, okay, it's technology. I don't have a feeling towards it, right? It's not like I need to repair my relationship with AI. It still affects the way that you feel about your organization and the way you think that you know, whether or not you think your organization is a fair place to be or has, you know, a great justice climate, et cetera. So I think that that piece kind of needs to sort of be integrated. The other part of it, AI has become, it's becoming, and I mean, if you look at engineers, like they're really, really good. And they're really at the point where it's really hard to tell when a decision is made by AI versus a person. And people have their, like humans have a difficulty understanding when they're interacting with AI, especially if you look at like open language and GPT-3 and all this sort of pieces. Um, understanding really like, is it a bot that's responding to me? Is it a human that's responding to me, right? And so who am I talking to actually? And who am I interacting with? And I think the more that we do or we are asked to interact with AI, that's going to affect the relationships that we have with our clients, with our suppliers, with other people that we're working with. And whether or not we realize that that's going to affect the way we, uh, you know, think about our relationship as at work as well. And right. And what needs to be repaired and how does that repair occur? Can you repair a relationship with AI? Can you repair a relationship with technology? Right. Even if yes, cognitively, we understand that, okay, this is AI. I think that on the sort of emotional affect of component, it's going to be, it's difficult for us to say, okay, this is just the technology. I shouldn't be upset with my organization because they're making me interact with this technology that I, you know, I don't like, or I feel like, you know, the relationship isn't great, et cetera. So I think that that's a really big piece that um, is going to affect sort of the context in which we conduct um, justice work in the future. All right. Thank you. Estelle, what would you like to add? Um, I've been kind of self-checking. So my, my roots are philosophical. Um, I studied philosophy first and then went on to religion. And oftentimes I have to remind myself and sometimes some of my colleagues, let's get to the real of this, the real experience of what we're trying to address. And that is that um, the experience of hurt and harm. And so when I think about problematizing I think about where we start with our conceptualization of restorative justice. And what I mean by that are what are the implicit assumptions that inform how we construct um, 
a phenomenology, for example, of restorative justice, an experience of restorative justice. And for me, um, I orient myself to thinking about RJ as how I become or how I get into right relationship with people. I mean, and that can be a very visceral experience. I mean, we all get the feeling in the pit of our stomach when something's not right. Um, And when we're not in good relationship with other people, um, that's a very real feeling, uh, physiological feeling, but also emotional feeling um, that we have. I mean, and that reminds me that where I began and my assumption is that the way that things are in the universe or in our our own universes and in society requires restoration. There is systemic inequity that exists. I mean, so to be vigilant, not necessarily hypervigilant, that might lead to some excesses and more harms, but vigilant about the way we approach organizing with the assumption that there is something that needs to be repaired. We can witness suffering if we just open our eyes from my perspective. I mean, we we turn on the media, the news. Obviously, things aren't as they should be in many respects. Um, And in my own lived experience as a a Afro-Latina woman living in the United States uh, with relatives in Central and South America and probably somewhere in Africa and other places that I've yet to learn about, um, I have to also think about how I deal with the internal conflict that I have, how I restore internally so that I can be a positive agent of change. I mean, so some of the things I think that we are talking about have to really be seated and rooted in the lived experiences of people Um, And not kind of the espousals of um, what we would like to see. How do we begin to bring ourselves back to real lived experiences that people are having? All right. Thank you. Deb, could you uh, close us up on this question? Yeah. So I see we only have 10 minutes left. I'll try to be very brief. Um, So there are two things I want to point out, especially to the um, audience, especially if you're considering this to be a research area, because again, I'm, I'm talking from the teaching perspective. One, I would argue that it is, we, it is fine and we should be doing research that's prescriptive. I'm not saying that it's not valid research, but I think it, finding ways to do a better job of doing RJ in the workplace to help man, would help serve practicing managers. The second thing I want to talk about is that in some ways, our publications are also teaching, right? Because we have learned something and we are sharing it with others. And so we are teaching them. Okay. So I do think that um, one of the things we can do, and I'm focusing right on the middle part of this, is to serve the practicing managers. How are we actually communicating what we're learning in our research to them? Are we, can, are we, publishing articles that can be assigned in an MBA class? Are we publishing articles in journals or in outlets where practicing managers will actually see this information? Are we volunteering to train, you know, to to do training on this topic, right? So one of the things I want 
us also be thinking about is how do we communicate about RJ to help these practicing managers learn about it? Thank you. As, uh, thank you, all of you. What we learned today from our podcast guests in part four of five-part episode series is contextualizing or problematizing restorative justice for practicing managers in the future. As our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. Once more, I'm Michael Gross, and on behalf of all of us, we thank our guests, Mina Andiapan, Estelle Archibald, Deborah Kidder, Tyler Okimoto, and Gregory Paul. And on behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Sai, Michael Gross, that's me, Jennifer Parlamas, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Sai, we thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website, which is at www.conflictandnegotiationteam.com. And that's one word. Conflict and Negotiation Team is one word. There you can find additional sources and links to materials cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.